Chapter 11 of Tracked by a Tattoo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tracked by a Tattoo by Fergus Hume. Chapter 11 Another Link in the Chain. True to his appointment, Garth called the next evening at the chambers in Duke Street, only to find that Fanks was absent, and that a note was awaiting him. "'Dear Garth,' wrote the detective, "'I have been called unexpectedly out of town and shall not return for at least three days. Visit me at the expiration of that time and prepare yourself for a surprise.' "'A surprise,' said Garth to himself as he departed. "'I wonder if he has found out about Emma Calvert and if his discovery has anything to do with the death in Tully's Alley. Think as he might, he could find no answer to this question, and he was forced to restrain his curiosity until such time as Fanks should return. In the meantime, out of curiosity, he called upon Mr. Vaud to learn what that gentleman thought about the position of affairs. Mr. Vaud thought nothing about them. A detective had charge of the case, and, in Mr. Vaud's opinion, it would be better to wait the solution by him of this criminal problem. All this, as well as much more, was expressed to Garth by the pompous lawyer. "'And I should advise you, Mr. Garth,' he concluded, "'not to let this unhappy episode divert your energies from your business.' "'As to that, I have precious little to do,' retorted Garth, with some heat. "'You do not put much in my way, Mr. Vaud. I am always hard up." "'I am aware of that,' replied Vaud, ignoring the beginning of the speech. "'And I am aware also that our late client assisted you several times.' "'Because I was necessary to him,' said Garth bitterly. "'And I'll tell you what, Mr. Vaud, had I known then what I know now about my cousin, I should never have accepted his help.' "'Oh, dear me,' said Mr. Vaud, "'quite so. Sir Gregory had many faults but are you a saint yourself, Mr. Garth?" "'I don't pretend to be one. Still, I never drove a woman to her death.' "'Do you know what you are saying, Mr. Garth?' "'Do you know the name of Emma Calvert, Mr. Vaud?' The lawyer paled and pushed his chair from the table. "'I—I have—heard the name,' he stuttered. "'Then you have heard the name of a very injured woman, Mr. Vaud.' Before the other could reply, a knock came to the door, and immediately afterwards it opened to admit a tall and handsome young man. He bowed to Garth and placed some papers before Mr. Vaud. "'Will you please excuse this intrusion, father, and look over these?' he said quietly. "'My son Herbert, Mr. Garth,' said the elder Vaud, and again the young man bowed. He rather resembled his father in appearance but there was a sternness about his manner which was wanting in that of the elder gentleman. He was dark-haired and clean-shaven, with thin lips and a compressed mouth. There was a look of resolution and hard work about him which did not recommend his personality to the pleasure-loving Garth. However, the latter bowed and smiled when introduced, and scribbled on a sheet of blotting-paper while Herbert spoke to his father. Still thinking on the subject of his discourse with Mr. Vaud, he absently wrote the name of Emma Calvert. Young Vaud moved near him while looking for a special paper, and in doing so his eye fell on the name. With an ejaculation he drew back, and turned as pale as his father had done. "'What do you know of Emma Calvert?' 
he demanded abruptly. Why do you write down her name? Herbert, said the father, warningly, almost imploringly. I shall speak, said Herbert, his composure replaced by intense excitement. What do you know of Emma Calvert, sir? Garth looked up in surprise. I know as much as Robert, the valet of Fellinger, could tell me. A scamp who served a scamp, muttered the young man. Sir Gregory was my cousin, Mr. Herbert. Then your cousin was a scoundrel, Mr. Garth. Herbert, leave the room, said his father sternly. The son looked defiantly at his father and turned away without a word. At the door he paused and addressed Garth. I know that your cousin was murdered, Mr. Garth, he said savagely. I am glad that he met with such a death. He escaped me, but he could not escape punishment. I hated Sir Gregory, and I blessed the man who killed him." He left the room, and in dumb astonishment Garth turned to the elder Vaud for an explanation. The old man had buried his face in his hands, but he looked up when Garth touched him and groaned aloud. "'I'm sorry you wrote down that name, Mr. Garth,' he said at length. "'Its effect on my unfortunate son is always terrible.' "'But for what reason?' I did not intend to tell you, but as you know so much, you may as well know all. Herbert was in love with this girl. He wished to marry her, and it was he who introduced her to Sir Gregory. You can guess the rest." I can guess that my cousin married the girl who took her to Paris, where he neglected her and drove her to suicide. I know about the marriage, said Mr. Vaud. I am glad that Sir Gregory did her that justice. I also know of the death. Sad, very sad. She must have been a pretty girl to have so strongly attracted two men. I never saw her, said Vaud. I did not even know that Herbert was in love with her until she eloped with Sir Gregory. Then my son came with his broken heart and told me all. He would have followed Sir Gregory to Paris, but that he fell ill of brain fever. Afterwards he was ordered on a sea voyage, and returned only six weeks ago. He heard of the death of Lady Fellinger in Paris, and—did he know that Fellinger had married her? Afterwards, not at first. He discovered all about the marriage and death in Paris. How, I do not know. But he came back broken in health and heart. He will never be the same man again. And whenever the name of Emma Calvert is mentioned, the consequences are as you see." Garth rose to go. It is a cruel story he said sadly, but Fellinger's sins have come home to him in a terrible fashion. Good-bye, Mr. Vaud." Then Garth took his leave, and withdrew to meditate on the villainy of his cousin, which had ruined two lives. Halfway along the strand he was struck by a sudden thought. If young Vaud had known and loved Emma Calvert, he would be the man to identify the woman who had presented herself at Fellinger's chambers. He believed Emma Calvert to be dead brought face to face with the missing woman, and he would see that she was alive. Though it will be difficult to find that woman, he said, resuming his walk. She has given us the slip. Still, she may call to see Robert again, and he is being watched by Maxwell, so the chances are that we may find out whether she is my cousin's wife or her ghost. If she is confronted with Herbert Vaud we may arrive at the truth. But will the truth lead to the detection of Gregory's assassin? I doubt it. 
he thought of calling upon Herbert and telling him about the appearance and flight of the presumably dead woman, but the same reason which had prevented him from seeing Hersham prevented his visit. No, he said resolutely, I must interview Fanks and ask his advice. The matter is too difficult for me to handle alone. Having come to this sensible conclusion, he went about his daily business and postponed moving in the matter until the return of Fanks from his mysterious journey. His appointment had been for the previous night, and Fanks had asked him to wait three days. As he had employed one day in seeing Mr. Vaud, he thought that he would utilize the second by interviewing Mrs. Boazoff. For this purpose he called at the Red Star, but he was disappointed. Mrs. Boazoff, the barmaid informed him, was out of town, on business. Garth left Tooley's alley in a meditative mood. Thanks has gone to the country on business. Mrs. Boazoff has gone to the country on business. I wonder if the same errand takes them there." Nothing further transpired, and on the evening of the third day Garth presented himself at Duke Street. Fanks was within and received him in the most amiable manner. Garth noted that his friend looked weary, and ventured an opinion that Fanks had made a long journey that day. "'You are about right,' said Fanks, indicating a seat. I only got back three hours ago from Hampshire. You have been to Mere Hall? I have been in the neighborhood of Mere Hall, and I have also been to Plymouth," he added after a pause. What have you been doing there? Following our friend Renshaw, alias Pinjoy. You don't mean to say that the two are one? cried Garth, jumping up. I do, and I can prove it by the clearest evidence you ever heard in your life. Sit down and listen. Garth resumed his seat, and leaned forward with much curiosity to hear the promised recital. It was well worthy of an attentive hearing. "'I told on that I suspected Renshaw to be Binjoy in disguise,' said Fanks. "'Your description of the one fitted the other in many respects. And the eagerness with which Renshaw tried to impress me with the fact that he was going to India roused my suspicions. I determined to see for myself if he was really leaving England, so I disguised myself as a parson and went to the docks. Renshaw had been followed there by my emissary, and he duly went on board the P&O steamer Oceana. Assured of this, I dismissed the watcher and took up the running to Plymouth. But how about your passage? Oh, I fixed that up all right. How, I need not stop to explain you may be sure that I kept watch on our friend, and, confident in my disguise, I tried to get speech with him. This was impossible, as he remained in his berth the whole time. I discovered, however, that his passage was booked to Bombay, exchanging at Aden into the Clyde. At Plymouth he feigned to be so ill as to be unable to proceed further on his journey, and rather than do so, he forfeited his passage money and got off. Then he did not go to India after all? My dear sir, he had no intention of going to India. I followed him ashore, and then I am sorry to say that I lost him. It is not creditable to my intelligence, said Fanks, shrugging his shoulders. What did you do? The best I could. I saw the local police and had the railway stations and boats watched. He could not leave Plymouth either by land or water without my knowing it. To make a long story short, I was informed that a stout gentleman, somewhat like my man, was awaiting a train at a certain station. I went there." "'And you saw Renshaw?' interrupted Garth. 
Indeed, no. I saw a clean-shaven man much younger in appearance than Dr. Renshaw, and dressed differently. From your description I recognized him as Binjoy, and to clinch the matter I followed him to Mere Hall." "'Then you are certain that Renshaw is Binjoy?' "'Positive. I made inquiries in the village, and I was informed that Sir Lewis was ill and that Binjoy was attending him. Of course I said nothing, for, to tell you the truth, I did not know what to say. But you will observe, Garth, that I have proved that these two men are one and the same." "'And the negro, did you see Binjoy's negro servant?' I inquired about him, and I was informed that Binjoy had brought no negro servant with him. No doubt he left him behind at Taxton-on-Thames." "'Then my idea is correct,' said Garth. The negro committed the crime at the instigation of Binjoy and Binjoy, in the disguise of Renshaw, went to the Red Star to see that it was accomplished. Now he has got rid of the negro and of his disguise, so cutting off every trace of his connection with the crime." "'A very plausible theory,' said Fank, shaking his head. "'But the motive?' "'Motive? Why, Binjoy wanted Lewis to inherit the property. He has great influence over Lewis. What would benefit the one would benefit the other. Oh, depend upon it, Fanks, it is as I say." "'No,' said Fanks, "'there is a third person in it, a woman. Emma Calvert? Mrs. Boazoff. Oh, come now, she is out of town on business. I know that, and her business was at Mere Hall in Hans. I saw her there.'" End of chapter 11